From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. This is our heritage. I mean, this is where we're from, and, and it's more than trying to get like press hits or opening a cool restaurant. Which I mean, we obviously want to do that as well. But it's more, it's more, it's part of our lineage, you know, and, and it's something that we need to like be able to pass down. And I get to explain who my grandmother was by making her pastries with my kids. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Now, you just heard from Michael Salmanov, the award-winning chef behind Philadelphia restaurants Zahav, Abe Fisher, and other Philly hotspots like Diesengoff and Federal Donuts. We're talking today with Michael and his business partner, Stephen Cook, who are the co-authors of their second cookbook together, this one called Israeli Soul. Now, their first book, Zahav, brought their flagship restaurant and its modern Israeli cuisine to life for home cooks, and it won the Cookbook of the Year from the James Beard Foundation. For this book, the duo traveled to Israel to highlight some of the tiny eateries and hole-in-the-wall shops across the country serving incredible food. Along with documentary-style photography and modern recipes, this book takes a deep look at Israel's culinary history, generations of families who have passed down recipes, and explores the soul of Israel. We've got a great show for you today. We're also connecting with Reem Cassis, who is the author of The Palestinian Table, to discuss a humbling friendship that she and Michael Salmanov have formed as a result of cookbooks. And we're also stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in our From the Vault segment. But first, a quick announcement. Next week is Salt and Spine's first ever baking week, just in time for your winter and holiday baking. So what's that mean? Well, I hope you're sitting down because this is big. Next week, we are bringing you four all-new episodes with some legends behind baking books. Beginning on Monday and then every day next week, we're sitting down with Rose Levy Berenbaum, who you might know is the author of The Cake Bible, Kristen McGlory from Food 52 and her latest book, Genius Desserts. We have Swedish star chef Magnus Nilsson, who's out with a new book on Nordic baking. And we have Kathy Barrow of The Washington Post, who just released a new book all about slab pies. You won't want to miss it. Four all-new episodes coming next week on the Salt and Spine Baking Week. But now let's head to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where we sat down with the authors of Israeli Soul, Michael Salmanov and Stephen Cook to talk cookbooks. Hi, Michael. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having us. So we're here to talk about your second book, uh, Israeli Soul, and your first book, Zahav, really explored Israeli food through the lens of your restaurant, Zahav, in Philadelphia. And this new book really takes us there, really takes us to Israel. You, You traveled across the country for this book. Can you start by telling us what you were trying to accomplish with this book and what Israeli Soul means to you? I mean, I think you just said it. We wanted to take people to Israel. So the book was really based around a trip that we took um, last August, where we spent eight days eating in Israel. We visited 82 restaurants at 82 meals. And, you know, as Zahav was from the perspective back across the Atlantic Ocean, this was trying to sort of take a look at the food in Israel. I mean, we were writing the, we were rewriting the table of contents while we were on the bus, you know, going from stop to stop. And trip really guided what was in the book and it's really the story of all the different cultures that have come together in a relatively recent period to make up what is you know arguably developing into into an israeli cuisine and michael for you what does israeli soul mean i think it was just really the the sort of inverse of zahav zahav was this israeli restaurant that defined israeli food uh, not certainly not for the first time but 
I think a lot of people were scared to call Israeli food Israeli. And even Israelis couldn't had a hard time accepting that there was such a thing as Israeli food, and they all came from somewhere else. So we wanted to call Zahav what it was, and there was no other way to sort of describe the food. And the book discussed that. And then I think for Israeli soul, we just we wanted to take the whole team that had built the Zahav book over to Israel and and explore. And um, and that was it. And there was at first it was like, should it be street food? Should it be like casual? And that doesn't work, you know, because you can't, you're affected by everything so greatly. I mean, even just like, you know, babka in a kiosk is like, it means something over there, you know, or, um, cafe afuch, which is like the, means upside down. It's like cappuccino, you know, with like borekas and like a hard boiled egg. Like that is a, that's an experience. And, and we wanted to bring all of it together. And so people could travel with us. Yeah. An experience. I mean, this is a travelogue and this is a, these, these are essays about the country and about where people come from, but really about the place. And when I think particularly about the term Israeli soul, you know, I think about the fact that for the majority of Israelis, their families trace their lineage within a couple of generations back to a completely different part of the world. In many cases, a place they can never go back to. And we think about food as a way to transmit you know, values and cultures across generations. And so it's even, I think, takes on an even heightened importance in a place like Israel where people can't, literally can't go back to where they came from. And food is just, food is a, a way that, you know, a thing that connects us from generation to generation. And I think it plays a role in, in the soul of the people and the soul of the culture. So, Michael, you were born in Israel then and grew up uh, in Philadelphia or in, in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh. Yep. yep. When did you sort of decide you wanted to move into food and pursue cooking and particularly pursue the foods of your heritage? It took a while. I mean, I was born there, grew up in Pittsburgh, moved back to Israel when I was 15, moved back to Pittsburgh, went to college, dropped out of college, moved back to Israel, got a job in a bakery just because I needed a job and fell in love with cooking and then went to culinary school because like I had you know, because it was a career and it was something that I liked and, you know, my fam, it, I wasn't like in jail, you know, right. it wasn't going to like get me hurt or killed or whatever. And it was just like, oh, my, you know, something I could complete. So I went to culinary school, felt like really loved it and worked full time. And my family was like psyched that I wasn't like in prison, you know, and, um, and then I came to Philly because it was kind of on the way to New York. And I stayed and I worked uh, at a really amazing, um, I guess like American restaurant, but like very French inspired. It was kind of like the Farallon or Le Bernardin of Philadelphia called okay. Straight Bass. And then I worked at a restaurant called Vetri. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Steve hired me at Marigold Kitchen and it was new American, but I was using a lot of Israeli ingredients and that... Um, one of the soups that I had on the menu was not Israeli and it was like a coconut lobster thing. And, and I made like this like coconut panna cotta with lobster with the idea being that it was like an ice cube okay. for soup, which meant that everybody just got room temperature soup and it sucked. Right. <laughs> and so Steve was answering the phone at the time and it was like, came down into the kitchen and said, I think that Craig LeBan, our food critic called, I think I just spoke to him. I think I just made a reservation for him. And by the way, that soup sucks. Like you have to change it. And so I ended up scrambling and going to um, this Middle Eastern like grocery store, cab stand bookstore called uh, Maka Market. And we'd been like, there were parts of the menu were already had like Israeli things. Right. But I went and uh, I got pink lentils and I made this like 
I was like, okay, there's a, a lentil soup that's Lebanese that's like awesome with caramelized onions and cumin. I'll, I'll take my grandmother's like kebab, like Bulgarian style kebabs, which are sweet and puffy and like super fatty. And, uh, also I'll make a Bulgarian kebab and then we'll wrap it with cabbage, which is like very Ashkenazi. So it was like right. Balkan Ottoman, Ashkenazi, and then Lebanese. And I made the soup. So you like, you cut open this like steamed cabbage that had like kebab in it. And then with like pink lentil soup, like poured around it with, it was like spiked with cumin. It was like really pungent. And the food critic came in, had dinner, wrote a whole piece on how Marigold was great. But he said the soup was like the best thing. And it tasted like Jerusalem in a bowl. Mm. And I think at that point, we probably, the idea of embracing, you know, these things that were personal to us became a reality. And then I'd like, go to Israel, come back, and Steve and I would like discuss opening an Israeli restaurant. Can you talk about the Ashkenazi influence that you've seen in Israeli cuisine? And then I know in the book you talk about sort of the role it's playing in America, right, in terms of a, a revitalization or a, a renewed focus by many people. Right. I think what's interesting and ironic is that, I mean, the, the earliest pioneers to Palestine in the turn of the 19th century who ended up creating the state of Israel were European and German. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean... I, you know, even up till the present day, like if you talk about who the, you know, political, social, cultural elite are, that's largely, you know, has always been Ashkenazi. And I think Sephardic Jews were kind of always looked on as something less than. However, when you think of Israeli food, you really think of Sephardic food or sort of Mizrahi food, like Eastern food. And it's always kind of been interesting to me. I mean, I think Ashkenazi food gets a bad rap as being heavy and we think, you know, Sephardic food is sort of dominates the Israeli landscape for a couple of reasons. One, the growing climate is such that, like, it's just such a, there's such a great climate for growing produce and things that are associated with the Mediterranean diet, which, you know, have the benefit of being super healthy and, and you know, sexy. And, uh, you know, things like cabbage and potatoes and turnips, maybe not so much. Um, but then the, the other, I think, cultural aspect was when the Ashkenazi Jews came to Israel there was a sort of repudiation of like the formal European tradition that they came from, the formal dining, and they came and they encountered this Levantine cuisine that was already there that was super exotic and vegetable forward and spiced and healthy, and that was like a way for them to embrace this new identity of these like pioneers. And um, there's still, I mean, there's very good Ashkenazi food still in Israel. It's a little bit harder to find. Um, but I think like anything, you know, back to America where we have a restaurant called Abe Fisher where we right. sort of explore our Ashkenazi roots. I think like anything, cooks these days are searching for that piece of themselves that is authentic that will in some way transmit to the plate, to the diner, and the diner will kind of get that this is food is coming from a place of, you know, a place of real authenticity and love and belief. And I think that's that's what cooks now are exploring as opposed to being locked into cooking French food or Italian food maybe. They're kind of free and embraced by diners exploring where they came from because I think there's something that just makes it taste better. So you, you spent eight days traveling through Israel. I think you say you ate um, 82 meals together with your photographer. And one thing that I found super interesting as I was reading through your book and reading about some of the work that went into it is that your photographer had not been to Israel before. How did that impact the, the work that you were doing, being able to have him and sort of have his perspective on things? That's a great question. I mean, I think from a very basic level, we like to take people to that country. 
You know, yeah. we did it before we opened Zahav. We flew over our, our opening team. And um, so I think that's like the joy of it. And I think that what you get is this perspective that is like totally fresh because he really had no context prior to that, even though he was very invested in Israeli food and Israeli culture and the cuisine, obviously through us. But I think that vibrancy that everybody sort of gets, that shock of like, oh my God, there's just so much. There's so so much color, so much spice and... um sort of fragrance, you know, uh, I think that you get that. I think that that translates to his photography. And then the rest of it we shot in my apartment to make it sort of like grounded and approachable. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, he shot, I mean, how many, like, and nobody shoots rolls of film, but like, <laughs> good Lord, he was, he took so much. Something about traveling with like a truly great photographer, Mike Persico, is that they seem to have just like a nose for where to look. Like he would get out of the bus first and just wander off and we'd end up following him. And just seeing it through his eyes, not just some, not a first time visitor to Israel on one level and then on this other level, just somebody who kind of like has a built in radar to look for as a professional photographer is really cool. Did you learn um, anything new during that trip or were there things that you experienced that really surprised you as you were going around the country with this team of people? I don't know if there's anything like new, but I mean that we just ate at so many restaurants that were like amazing. Uh huh. For me, it, it was hard to, f- I don't remember. We say that like there were, of the 82, there were like two things that we ate that weren't great. And I don't remember what they were. <laughs> so I'm always amazed at how fantastic kind of everything is and like yeah. what everything just tastes sort of so much better. And you learn something new. And also like the country itself is changing and progressing. And like Jerusalem now is a very cool place to go eat. And before it was like you'd go to the holy sites. And, and walk around the old city and it kind of sucked. Like from a culinary perspective, there wasn't that much. And it was really, it's really cool to walk through the shuk at like two, you know, at like 11 o'clock at night and like stumble upon these like great restaurants. Now you write in the beginning of the book, um, you say like America, Israel is a product of migration. The vast majority of Israelis are only a few generations removed from a completely different life in a completely different place. And you write that food is the bridge that connects them to their heritage and to each other. Um, obviously, this book is coming out as Israel is 70 years old as a, as a state. Can you talk about the impact that you've seen migration has had on Israeli food? And particularly, I think you alluded to this earlier, as you're trying to make a book about Israeli food and call it Israeli food, the like maybe pushback that you get from some people who say, actually, that has roots here or here, and how you sort of deal with that. I mean, I like to talk about the Sabih sandwich as something that was developed in Israel, only really exists in Israel, because a lot of people think that, you know, a lot of people think that it's just the food that was already there. And there's a lot of that. Um, although Israelis don't claim credit for that, they just love to eat it. But Sabih is something that was brought by Iraqi Jews. Every Jewish culture around the world is guided in some way, their food is guided in some way by the laws of Kashrut and the laws of the Sabbath. And they all have this overnight Sabbath stew that you put in the oven on Friday uh, night just before sundown, and then you're not allowed to really cook or touch the oven. You pull it out on Saturday afternoon, you eat it for lunch. And so the Iraqi version of that is to beat. And the Iraqis would eat that for lunch, but before synagogue in the morning, they would pull things out of it and eat it as a quick hot breakfast. So you had hard eggs hard cooked in their shells overnight. You had eggplant. And then they would eat it together with amba, which is a uh, pickled yeah, pickled mango condiment that actually traces its roots back to India, where Iraqi Jews were traders. So they brought those things to Israel when they came en masse in the 1950s. 
and they 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 noticed, or some you know enterprising young Iraqi noticed that other immigrant groups were having a lot of success selling food stuffed inside of pita. Like that was the sort of way to culinary success. So they took these things. They took fried eggplant. They took um, you know the hard cooked eggs, the amba, put it in a pita with tahina and chopped salad because it was Israel. And they started selling it in some, you know, in Ramat Gan, a suburb of Tel Aviv. They started selling it as sabich. You can't find sabich in Iraq mm. um, until, re- you know, probably find it in New York and a few other places now. But for the most part, it's a truly Israeli dish, a product of migration, um, and 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 a dish that is starting to hold its own against these things like falafel and shawarma, which are not inherently Israeli. You know, in the in the food culture, there is something that is super popular. So again, there's food that existed in the region that Israelis love to eat. I mean, what we might call Israeli salad here, they call Arab salad there. So I think the idea of like crediting who owns a food is kind of silly. I think food is something that we all share. Well, and also, I mean, you can never like what's the statute of limitation on ownership of food? I mean, when right. like there were no lemons in the Middle East till the Moors brought them. You know, and before that, everyone used sumac for sour. Sumac that we have in eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey that Native Americans used to make a beverage of, and then the Pennsylvania Dutch took to make, like, pink lemonade. So, I don't know. Like, when when does it end? Right. And if you want to make a case against Israel, you can use food to do that. But it's like, to accuse Israel of not having a cuisine or only, like, taking or appropriating cuisines is also ridiculous. I mean, not... Not voluntarily, Jews were pushed out of Israel for a very long period of time, and then got pushed out of their host countries a hundred years ago and had no other place to go. And it's like that is the way that it goes sometimes. I mean, the, you know, food migrates in sometimes very not pretty ways. So Yeah. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Israeli soul authors Michael Salmanov and Stephen Cook. We're joined now by Reem Cassis, author of The Palestinian Table, which includes 150 recipes for modern Middle Eastern home cooking. And we're talking with Reem about how she and Michael have formed a unique friendship. It all began with a meal at Zahav and then was swung into motion by Reem's cookbook. What has brought the renowned Israeli chef behind Zahav and the award-winning cookbook author behind The Palestinian Table together? And what insight does Reem have into how food can facilitate uneasy conversations? Let's find out. Hi, Reem. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yes. So I read a recent article in Food & Wine magazine uh, after we talked with Michael Salmanov about your friendship with him. And I thought it'd be really interesting to hear about how the two of you met and connected and formed this friendship. So we officially met about a year ago, but I think the story goes back much further to about 2008 when Zahav had just opened up. And I was a student at Wharton at the time here in Philadelphia. And I think I was homesick, you know, anyone who leaves their country for the first time and is exposed to a different culture without the same foods, you crave those things. And I remember hearing about this restaurant and I went to try it and they had a dish of frike. Frike is this um, grain of wheat that's been burnt and after it's been harvested. And I remember eating it at his restaurant and it tasted so similar to the one that my mom makes at home. And of course, I felt satisfied and nostalgic to be eating such a good dish. But on the other hand, a part of me was very upset and frustrated because here I am eating a Palestinian dish at a restaurant that says it's an Israeli restaurant. So this food is being marketed to the U.S. as an Israeli dish. 
a little less than 10 years went by. And during that time, you know, I graduated, I went and I worked in consulting and eventually moved to London and I had my first daughter. And then when I took some time off from work, I ended up writing this cookbook. It's a much longer story. It wasn't planned per se, but I wanted to preserve the Palestinian culinary heritage to share with people what Palestinian food was. You know, part of that, as you can probably tell, goes back to seeing foods being dubbed as Israeli without credit being given to where these foods were either learned or adopted from. And after the book came out, I had just moved to Philadelphia from London again. So here I was living in the same place. And it felt like it was full circle that I'd come back to Philly right around the time that my book was being published. And I thought, you know, Mike Solomonov is one of the biggest people in the food scene in Philly. And obviously, we are going to at some point or other run into each other. And so I wanted to send him a book with a nice note to, you know, get off on the right foot. And I sent him a letter with my book. And in it, I mentioned the dish of frike. I said, you know, I remember eating it. It was very good. Um, a part of me, of course, was upset that I was having the best Palestinian dish at an Israeli restaurant. But he was very touched by receiving my book and my letter, which was coming from the heart. And we met after that. And I hadn't expected much to come out of it. But after we met, we actually, neither of us went down, oh, let's do something together or let's do an event. It actually was, hey, do you want to come over for dinner and bring your family? And he did. And funnily enough, from there, our friendship blossomed. Our kids got along extremely well. And somewhere along the way, this whole that I'm Palestinian and you're Israeli, it kind of dissipated as we were enjoying each other's company and friendship over food. But I think, you know, what it made me realize was not that food will solve this Israeli-Palestinian conflict or that it will lessen from its importance, but rather that it was over food that we were able to have these conversations that were actually uncomfortable. So in a way, food kind of made the environment comfortable enough for us to be in where we could discuss the topics that were not necessarily easy to approach. So you formed this friendship then, uh, and I love that it all sort of started with you reaching out with your newly published cookbook. Are there lessons that you've learned then as, as the two of you and your families have spent time together? Lessons maybe for how food, uh, as you just mentioned, can sort of be not necessarily the thing that solves issues, but the thing that maybe brings people together to have conversations? I mean, I think a lot of people say, oh, food brings people together, but it sounds a bit fluffy, if you well, like sure. it's going to solve if food is not going to solve a major problem like the one in the Middle East. I think what food does is it reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us that at the end of the day, we are all people. We all have our problems. We all have the things that matter to us. And once you get to know someone as a person, it's a lot easier to understand what issues matter to them. It's easier to understand them as, you know, I now look at Mike, not just as a chef, but I see him as a father. I see him as a friend. I see him in a lot of different hats. And I think he can say the same about me. And it's once you get to know someone that the issues that matter to them start to matter to you. And you can have conversations about how to fix those issues. In a way, I've learned that Life is quite complicated, and one of the best ways to address this complexity is to start to understand the person across the table from you. That's the first step. You get to know the person. One of the easiest ways to know people is to eat with them, and I've noticed this with all my friends. You know, most of my good friendships start out over a meal. Either I go out to lunch with someone or I invite someone over and we eat together, and once you break bread, if you will, you start to talk about things that matter to you as people with, uh, you know, shared interests and whatnot. And that's, I think, where food plays a role. 
it's naive to say that food will solve the problem, but food can help you have an uncomfortable conversation in a more comfortable way. Thank you so much for joining us, Reem. This was really great. Thanks, Brian. That was Reem Cassis, author of The Palestinian Table. You can read more about Reem and Michael's friendship in a recent feature article in Food & Wine magazine. Check our episode notes or saltandspine.com for a link. Bay Area listeners, you heard about our baking week, so you won't want to miss the special event to go along with it. That's right. Next Saturday, December 15th, we're opening up the Civic Kitchen, the beautiful cooking school for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District, where we record all our interviews for the Salt and Spine Cookie Swap. If you love cookies or holiday baking, you won't want to miss it. Join us for an afternoon of cookie demos, baking tips, cookie sampling, and glasses of bubbly and warm apple cider. We'll serve cookies by some authors featured on Salt and Spine and treats from other home bakers. Plus, don't miss cookie demos from author Jessica Batalana and myself. Pick up some cookie baking tricks from a bevy of Civic Kitchen teachers just in time for the holidays, and we're giving away a set of baking books and a Salt and Spine t-shirt to one lucky attendee. To get in on the swap, you just need to bring a dozen homemade cookies to swap them for more to take home. No time to bake? Don't worry. You can still take cookies home, $10 per dozen. Tickets to the event are $10, and proceeds will benefit La Cocina, which supports low-income food entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. If you're in the Bay Area and you love cookies and you love cookbooks, I hope you'll join us at the Salt and Spine Cookie Swap. Find out more and RSVP at civickitchensf.com. And now, back to our conversation with Israeli soul authors Michael Salmanov and Stephen Cook. You also have an expression that you use in the beginning of the book, a Hebrew expression, Lador Vador, which translates to from generation to generation. And you noted that Israeli soul is, a, we know it's a cookbook, but it's also sort of a travelogue. And we've been talking about how you traveled the country. There's sort of mini profiles about various restaurant owners and people who are creating food and producing food in Israel in the book. And you talk, you use that expression to talk about a lot of the people who you met who were second or third generation folks running restaurants or shops that their parents or grandparents had run. Could you talk about how you saw that manifest itself in your travels? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, a good example was this little restaurant called, um, well, it's called Kadori. It's like a falafel shop and it's in Oda Sharon, which is in this sort of like I don't know. It's like a suburb of Tel Aviv, but, um, not a lot of people know it. And it's certainly not like a food destination, but there's this great falafel shop that is, um, was owned by two brothers. One has recently passed away and they were so successful that they fed their families, but they also both drove out, drove Audis. That was like my dad. My dad right. was like, they both have Audis. That's how good <laughs> this falafel was. Yeah. <laughs> and it's how they've fed their families and they're older. And uh, so we were like, we have to go there. And we pull the bus over and we jump out and we land in front of another sort of like kiosky restaurant that's on the sidewalk that we undershot it by like a few hundred feet or a block. And instead of the falafel shop, we ended up at the Sabih place. So we're like, all right, well... We'll shoot this and then we'll walk up the street to the falafel shop. And so this one shop makes sabich. That's all they make. Just these eggplant sandwiches. Okay. And then we like walk up after shooting and there's a, uh, Tunisian, like a fricassee, which is like a tuna with, um, hard boiled eggs and lemon and olive and harissa that you put on a mufleta, which is this kind of like fried baguette. Okay. Um, and it's, it's sort of, it's probably where the Frenchies got salat niçois, you know? And it's this, it, it was one, I think a younger kind of kid making this one dish that comes from Tunisia. And that was like the only thing they made. And then, so we eat that, of course, and take pictures. And then we pass a schnitzel place that only makes 
schnitzel coming from like Austria or, or uh, Germany. We actually didn't eat there. And then we crossed the street finally and get to this falafel shop. And uh, the guy was like freaking out and really excited because he saw us taking pictures. And he comes out and he has a New York magazine that talks about He's like, oh, there's a famous chef that wrote about our falafel shop. And it ended up, it was me, I wrote it, right. um, <laughs> which is how you get falafel for free in Israel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was interesting because it was four separate gastronomies or cultures that we simply in this one horse town in Israel outside of Tel Aviv, we like walked through and it was just really like everybody on the bus was like, oh, this is crazy. And I was like, this is Israel and this is kind of how it goes, you know? Yeah. Now you have a great falafel recipe in Israeli soul, but let's talk about hummus for a minute. So your, your Zahav recipe for hummus has somewhat, I think, of a cult following. You offer a five minute version of hummus in Israeli soul. Can it really live up to the expectations that you sort of built around the incredible Zahav hummus recipe? You know, I think that the Zahav recipe is exactly what we serve in the restaurants. Right. And we do it that way for a reason. I think there's got to be, what we said to ourselves was between supermarket hummus on the one hand, which is fine, but is kind of a totally different thing. And then the sort of two days of advanced planning that you need to make the Zahav hummus, there's got to be something that is, you know, in the middle or better better than supermarket. What I think we have is something really, really close to the Zahab recipe, we use canned chickpeas, mm-hmm. um, which are a very, very high quality product. I would say the only real difference is that when we cook chickpeas at Zahav, for our hummus, by the time they're done cooking, they're not recognizable as chickpeas. Whereas when you have canned chickpeas, they're cooked very well right. to maintain the integrity of the bean. So, and there's a reason, right? When when you're making the Zahav recipe, that you overcook them we, intentionally. We incredibly overcook them intentionally, and then we press them, and that is how you get like the super super smooth hummus that right. and like a fifteen thousand dollar food processor. <laughs> but when you're doing it at home, I mean, if you can do it in five minutes for you know, and make hummus for your family for under $5 and make, I mean, I'm talking about a lot of hummus. We wanted to make it very easy for people to do that. And I, th- I think that it tastes almost as good. Israeli soul, you would say of your two books is more geared for a home cook who's wanting to create some of these recipes at home. Zahav is maybe the lo- the weekend recipes, the stretch recipes. You've got a little more time to recreate some of the restaurant dishes. I think that we actually learned a lot making Zahav. I don't think Zahav is really a complicated cookbook. We just wanted to abbreviate some of the process using a smaller kitchen, using a kitchen that's maybe a little ill-equipped, or now that we have like more children than we had, then we like want to clean up a little bit less. Right. And this is an easy way to do it. I'm curious if there are cookbooks that have inspired you, um, either as you were working on these books of your own or just sort of in your professional life. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I love looking at cookbooks, everything from, you know, aspirational cookbooks that you'll never cook from to, like, I think one of my favorite books and one of the ones that I've used the most is a Jacques Pepin book, La, La Method and La Technique, mm-hmm. which I think we're at 1.2 books combined into one. Where right. There's literally, like, frame by frame pictures of his hands, you know, which are, like, the most skilled hands, I think, to ever really <laughs> yeah. step foot in the kitchen. <laughs> Um, doing, you know, doing this, doing, showing you how to do these techniques. And I think we, we sort of do, try to do a little bit of that in, in our books where we, we have, you know, multiple figures showing how to do things. That's, I think, my favorite book on my shelf. I feel like the personal books, like, um, Elaine Ducasse, like Flavors of Provence or whatever, I love that. I love that book. I just think it's really super personal and it's not, particularly out it's not something you'd expect from William Ducasse he goes into the one place that makes like the best panisse or whatever and he just talks about 
that person. And um, John Kearns' first book is like awesome. It's like so funny and so also very personal. And he has this like dialogue with his father about like fishing. And I just like love that. Um, so I don't know. To me, like I don't ever cook out of a cookbook anymore. Mm-hmm. I love to read them and um, I love to see what people are doing. And, yeah. Uh, but the way that they, probably the way that Jacques Pepin, but Jean Louis Paladin, like the way he would like handle food to me was like, it showed so much respect, you know? And I think that you, if you can unravel and unwind and really get into this relationship between the chef and, and, and their cuisine, I think it's really like special. And when that's how we relate to our food, this is our heritage. I mean, this is where we're from and, and it's more than trying to get like press hits or trying to get like opening a cool restaurant, which I mean, we obviously want to do that as well, sure. but it's more, it's more, it's part of our lineage, you know, and, and it's something that we need to like be able to pass down. And I get to explain who my grandmother was by making her pastries with my kids. It's incredible. And cookbooks are um, really personal things. I think we see both of your personalities, your identities in these cookbooks. One other personal thing that you were open about in 2014 is your struggles with addiction, um, which you talked about with Frank Bruni in the New York Times. Why was that important for you as a a soon-to-be cookbook author and someone with some stature to talk about publicly? You know, I think that I want to be able to help other people. I mean, I think that that's how addiction works and recovery in particular Mm -hmm. works. I think that people really sacrificed and gave as much as they could for me just to get from point A to point B. I mean, Steve like spent his mornings for the first year, my first year of sobriety, picking me up from a 12 step meeting and driving me into work because I couldn't, I couldn't be by myself. Um, and I think that in a way, this idea of being like, of, of of being open and having that be taboo when it comes to addiction is just so contradictory to like how you get clean. Secrets make you sick. You're not supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be accepted and you're supposed to accept and not, um, not let pride, ego or shame drive you back out to, to using. And I think that when you've got somebody that is, um, that can be like a role model or something like that telling you that like they've struggled, um, it makes it easier. Right now, it is addiction is plaguing our country, mm-hmm. literally. And I think that for a very long time, families who everybody deals with this stuff. I mean, this isn't like unique to just restaurants or anything like that. But you um, sort of sweep this problem under the rug, and I'm like, and that is not the way to deal. That is not a way to recover. That is a you're trying to absolve people of guilt and shame, and you can't be open about what it is that they struggle with. So it's really Hard, and I think that also there was such a this misconception. You know, I was like, I grew up not privileged, but I had everything that I needed compared to most people in the world. Definitely privileged, and there was no addiction in my immediate family, and yet somehow I ended up becoming like a crackhead. You know, and it wasn't, and and that is like an important thing to be able to share with people and uh, to show. I think the sort of elusiveness uh, of of addiction and dealing with it. So I, I don't know. It wasn't easy. I mean, it was like the first, my parents knew that I had been to rehab and that I was in recovery. It was like, they read about the details of it, like in the New York times, right. Just kind of an uncomfortable conversation afterwards, but it's also like, I don't know. I'm super proud of it. And I celebrated 10 years of last Sunday. Congratulations. You know? Well, thank you very much, but it's literally just a product of the people that I have in my life. Yeah. Um, so, but I think that, you know, 
being able to find solace in the fact that other people have gone through those people that you wouldn't suspect is, is great. And that we just had an amazing, um, zero proof dinner at feast, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which is the food festival in Portland. And yeah. it was like amazing chefs, uh, and, uh, I think combined total of 57 years of sobriety. Yeah. You know, and it's amazing. It's just awesome. Yeah. That's incredible. Congratulations again. Thank you. Um, so we always end with a little lightning round. I thought we'd play a little, um, a game of, I don't know. Steve I, hates I, us. <laughs> I think this will be fun and, and hopefully not too hard. So, um, you write in the book that after a thousand years, people are okay with where hummus is, right? In, in Israel, they're not trying to redefine hummus and try to top it with a bunch of things. But then in the United States, people love to top hummus with things, right? And so I thought I would throw you a category. Maybe we'll alternate back and forth, see if you can come up with some great things to put on your blank canvas of hummus. Okay. Cool. Who wants to start? Steve. Uh, we'll start. start, we'll start with Michael. Okay. So someone tells you, you have to make a hummus with fruit. What, what do you top it with? Okay. So is fruit like the, the, the star, I have to use fruit to make a topping. Yeah. Fruits, fruits, the star, right? You're in I a, would take apricots and okay. I would make umba with them and I would ferment the apricots with fenugreek, coriander, garlic, chilies, mustard seed. And then I would use uh chicken fat and then fried chicken skins. And I would do like apricot umba with tahina, fried eggplant, chicken skins. Sounds almost as delicious as what I what I've got. What do you got? I'm kidding. It sounds better than what I have. Um, I would take uh, make a chicken salad with like dressed with tahina, okay, instead of mayonnaise and tons of dill, and then um, just cut up some cut up grapes. Grapes. And mix it okay. in with that. Yeah. yeah. How about um, a breakfast hummus? Oh, shakshuka mm-hmm. suspended in the middle of the hummus. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, yeah. Steve. It's okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I, I mean, hummus full is very traditional. Um, yeah. Breakfast with like the stewed um, fava beans and the hard boiled egg. And fool is the name of the stew. Fool is the, is the fava bean stew, which is a dish in its own right. I think the national dish of Egypt. Right. How about um, a, a beach hummus? You're going to the beach for the day, and someone says, "I want toppings for my hummus while I'm hanging out." I feel like the beach hummus in Israel is by wearing like a speedo and eating hummus. Is <laughs> already said, no toppings, just natural, a speedo. <laughs> it's, right, it's environment. Beach. Um, I mean, I think that. Sh- chicken like i like the chicken on the barbecue and okay. then you just like unload that on hummus and wrap it up you know so you don't get sand in it yeah, i was gonna say like suntan lotion with coconut flavor or something. <laughs> yeah pina colada in the middle yeah. of <laughs> i think like honestly like the like just awesome tomatoes it's like cut up and dressed with like olive oil and tons of herbs would be great at the beach yeah that sounds delicious all right last one how about the hummus travesty like what what can nobody ever put on top of hummus there's a lot of that that exists. Okay, give me a, a few. <laughs> they make a lot more money than we do. I'll tell you that. I don't like um, dessert hummus, mm-hmm. which is a thing. Right. I think that's like, I don't know. I guess I've never had it, So, but I just I would like to hate on You're it. You're opposed to the principle. I think yeah. it's weird, but um, I don't like when people puree stuff and put it into hummus either. Yeah, I mean, it's hummus trend is, an, is the Arabic word for chickpeas, so when you have black bean hummus or white bean hummus, that's bean dip, you know? That's, right. That's, that's right. all what it is. <laughs> right. Seven layer. Um, oh, there's an opportunity there, right? What do they call that? Seven like seven layer, layer dip, dip right? Seven layer dip, yeah. Bean is part of that, right? It is. So seven layer hummus? Yeah, I mean, I would no? make fun of myself for doing that, but yeah. 
you know, if you're in your Speedo at the beach, I guess it's acceptable. <laughs> All right. Perfect note to end on. Well, thank you so much. It was great to have both of you here. Really thank you for having it. us. Appreciate it. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. Uh, so we just sat down with Michael and Steven to talk about their latest book, Israeli Soul, which mm-hmm. builds on their first book together, Zahav. And I'm hoping you have some info to share with us. Well, I love both of their books. Yeah. And Zahav uh, is a little more geared towards restaurant cooking, you know, things will take you a few hours to make, whereas sure. Israeli soul is really for more home cooking, slightly faster. But when they were here doing a talk, I asked them to talk about Israeli food and what makes Israeli food. He said, if you go to Israel, they'll laugh at you if you ask for an Israeli restaurant. There's right. really no such thing. Israeli food is such a combination of Yemeni and, and Palestinian and uh, some Indian that is Jewish, you know, all sorts of different kinds of, uh, foods from the Arab world. Um, there's something that he was saying we call an Israeli sandwich or something that they call an Arab sandwich. (laughs) So, so, um, you know, that food has influences from so many different places. And that's what's so exciting about it. At the same time, he does have some things in here that are um, Ashkenazi Jewish, which right. is sort of your matzo ball soup and matzo brai, things like that, that we remember goose fat. But he talked about how American Jews who came from Eastern Europe actually have a more limited palate because when they came over, they were very poor. Uh-huh. Uh, my family is a great example. They didn't have a lot of money. They were escaping. And so they were more used to using, well, leavened bread, you know, unleavened bread like uh, matzah, which actually in the Bible is about people escaping and not having time to let their bread rise. Right. It's almost the same story. They, you know, they escaped and were only able to make these very simple things. Whereas Eastern Europeans who moved to Israel had a little bit more money. Um, They weren't necessarily escaping and they brought foods that were a little more uh, wealthy. They had stuffed goose and goose liver pate and things with goose fat. And it sounds sure. like a lot of goose. Um, right. <laughs> but it sounds like a very rich cuisine and rich yeah. heritage that American Jews aren't used to. So it's exciting that that's included in the book as well. Yeah. And I love that this is a book that's geared more towards home cooks, as you noted, than Zahav, but also really takes a deep look into people, restaurants, and sort of scenes all across Israel, right? They spent time uh, traveling the country together with a photographer to document for this book, which is just stunning. Their visit sounded so amazing and all the different places that they went and small towns where they, you know, would not even make it to the restaurant that they were going to because they had to stop at all these other places and try what they had. And it just, you know, it sounds like it's one of the most exciting food locales in the world right now. And I'm glad we're finally getting exposed to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Celia. Of course. I'm happy to talk to you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll also find a recipe for the five-minute hummus from Israeli Soul. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Special thanks this week to Reem Cassis for joining us as well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.
Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the home edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.